0: It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health.
1: Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, on this edition of the show, we're going to celebrate Women's History Month.
2: Thanks, Ann. We're going to talk a lot about women's history how we've advanced some really cool uh, people who know personally through their experiences about the success of women uh, in honor of women's history month and then we got a little irish luck we're going to talk about too
1: a great show coming up next to WJR's Healthy Woman Show brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, our first guest is Menon Rayon. She is a former Canadian ice hockey goaltender, the only woman to play in the NHL. She's an Olympic silver medalist. She has won gold medals in the world competition. She is currently a Bally sports Detroit analyst and reporter covering the Detroit Red Wings. And on top of that, she coaches and leads a young, I should say young girls league, right, Manon? Uh, young girls are a hockey program. Young girls hockey program. I mean, you are... Little
2: Caesars, yeah
1: amazingly impressive. So thank you for being on the show today. Dr. Carol is beyond excited to talk to you. So I'm going to let her <laughs> kick the questioning off.
2: Well, as I was sharing with you before, uh, Ma'am, we, uh, we're celebrating Women's History Month. And uh, who better to represent the amazingness of women than you uh, during the course of your wonderful career and and as you, we talked before. I am a hockey freak. We are just, we just breathe hockey. And three out of the four of my kids uh, play hockey. I had two for a forward, a defenseman, and a goalie. So uh, as a mother of a goalie, I'm I I can feel that pain of of uh, sitting in the middle of the stands. And what's in my cocktail thing is not water for sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you're sitting there, you know is he going to get it? Is he not? And and uh, so being a goalie is, is I got to feel very, uh, very difficult. So tell me what got you into hockey and were there a lot of girls playing uh, back then when you started playing uh, as a goalie?
3: Yeah, I started playing hockey when I was younger. My two brother was playing and my father there was a coach and no girls were playing hockey at the rink. So uh, the only way I could play it's uh, every time I asked them to play at home, my dad used to make an ice rink in the backyard and they said, yeah, no problem. You can come play with us, but you're going to be goalie because we need to practice our shots. So I would be the goalie for my brother every day. And one day my dad uh, who was coaching. My younger brother uh, was telling my mom at the dinner table that, um, you needed to pick one of the boys to play goalie for our upcoming tournament and nobody really show interest. So I didn't know which boy you would pick. And I turned to my dad and I said, why not me? I do it to my brother all the time here. And at first, when I said that they were not too sure, like, should we, my mom look at him, like, is it a good idea? And they talk about it and they decide to let me play and it was funny because the first day that i show up for one of the practice my dad wanted to make sure that people would not judge me uh being a girl so he made sure he put my helmet on before entering the rink and nobody knew i was a girl so i was just playing goalie and everybody was excited the parents oh great we have a goalie none of our boys gonna have to play goalie for the tournament and that's how i got accepted from the team right away
2: Unbelievable. And so you take your helmet off. Was everyone like, are you kidding me?
3: (laughs) At first, you know, some people obviously then they were really happy and then they were questioning, like, uh, why are we having a girl? And along the way, it's funny because as I start having more success and play more and, you know, some people like would go to my dad and say, oh, my son is really good playing goalie uh, in the backyard when they play on the street hockey. Maybe you should try him." And then my dad would come up to me and said, you know, next game, you're not going to play goalie, just you're just going to play out. And and I would say to my dad, why now? Like now that I'm doing really good, they want to play goalie. They didn't want to play goalie. before." (laughs) And my dad would say to me, trust me, just go with it. And sure enough, my dad would put that little boy in the net and we would lose by a big score. So then all the parents would come up to my dad and said, we need your daughter back in the net. <laughs> so he just, he was really smart to make sure that people would accept me and he would never push the boundaries. And he was always like proving to people that I belong there. And that really helped me along the way. Very cool.
2: And then progressing on to go from... Being the, the, the daughter, sister who was the goalie to then progressing throughout your career to get into the Olympics. Uh, tell me what that was like.
3: Yeah, it was really hard when I started because being the only girls, even if I had success playing the game, uh, when I decided I wanted to go try out for the highest level, like all the other boys on my team, uh, the coaches would tell my dad, like, don't bring your daughter. We're not going to take your girls. because She's going to take the spot of one of our boys. That's going to make it to the NHL one day. And my dad said, she really want to come and he would take me and he would not tell me that I had no chance to make the team. <laughs> and I would go to try out and they would cut me and I would be sad and bummed out. And, but the next day I would ask my dad to come out and practice more with me. And I would ask him to sign me up for goalie school. So He really saw that every time that I was getting cut, that that was pushing me to want to work harder and do more. And my goal was to make that top team. And it took me, I got cut, I think, three or four years in a row uh, until one coach, when I got to the age of 14, 15, he said, I'm going to take the two best goalie. And I finally made the top level and, you know, and, and really had success because I worked so hard probably more than everybody else I've been cut every year like that and I I, you know to me that's one thing that went out coaching the young girls and and when I talked to the parents I said any adversity that your kids are facing when they're younger in hockey it's all good thing that's going to make them better and stronger in the long run so and it really did that for me and I faced other adversity along the way then after that like to go to the midget triple a, which was the next level before major junior, before professional hockey. Um, you know, they invite all the doubling goalie except me cause I was a girl. So again, I faced this other adversity. So I had to take a different path, uh, to make it back to men's hockey. So someone talked to me about the women's league that was in Montreal. It was a two and a half hour from us. And because we were women, we were playing at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. When everybody was done playing, they were giving that ice time for women. And I was young, and those women were like older than me, obviously. But that was the only place I could play at a high level. And I would drive two and a half hours. Wow. And I would come back home at 3 and 4 in the morning. But one day, that game was shown on TV. And someone saw me play a major junior coach. And he was talking to me about his team. And I was like, oh, I play with this guy. I play against this guy on your team. I knew all the players on his team. So he invited me to uh, practice. He was really impressed. And the following year, I got invited to a major junior camp. So like all along the way, even when I got invited to Tampa, it's always been like me finding a different option and someone see me and and keep persevering, even if some people try to stop me.
2: And that's a very good message to, I think, the girls that you are... Uh, coaching and anyone who looks up to you is that, you know, it, it, it's perseverance. It's trial through, you know, disappointment. It's, you know, you could have stopped several times, but this was a passion for you and you only worked harder and, and look where it got you. I mean, how how did it feel to step on the ice in the preseason game of an NHL game? Were you nervous? Did you feel
3: like I finally, <clears throat>
2: excuse me, got to where I wanted to be. Tell me
3: what that was like. It was crazy because, first of all, like what people didn't know before the, the exhibition game, we started the training camp with a mini tournament. Right away, we were playing games. So they split up all the people that was coming to try out in different teams. And my first time I stepped on the ice and, and played in that mini tournament, I did not allow any goal in 14 shots. Our team won. I was the only goalie in the four-goalie that played that game that didn't allow any goal. And after that game, we had a press conference. And that's when Phyllis Posto announced. He said, the way she plays t- today, you may see her in the exhibition game. And I, I looked at him like, <laughs> did he really say that? And my English was not very good. So I didn't know if I heard it well. Uh, but I continued to play well in that mini tournament. And I finished in the, the top three goalies in that tournament. So they decided to put me in an exhibition game. And so, but that was one thing to play in that mini tournament and play in the real exhibition game against a different team. And the pressure was so high. I remember I always tell anybody that asked me the walk from my locker room to the ice was probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life. Like I felt you were like 20 years heart- old, right? I was 20 years old and I felt oh. like my heart was beating out of my chest. Like it was just, Crazy, but the cool thing is, as soon as I stepped on the ice, like the butterfly went away. I felt like I was just playing another game. Like I, and I had that ability to put my place mentally in a place to. That was probably my strongest thing. Like I was able to be strong mentally every time I played the game because I, I didn't have the size of a a guy there. I was the smallest player there, Um but mentally I was able to put myself in a place and, and not. It's just more pressure that I had, better I was on the ice. And when I stepped on the ice, it's like the butterfly went away and I was just playing another hockey game. And it's not until after the game was over that you realize, like, wow, I just played in the NHL (laughs) game, and that was a cool feeling. That
2: is awesome. Wow. And do you have any questions for Manom?
1: I do. So tell us a little bit about your broadcasting career. I mean, you've gone from being a hockey superstar, and now you're doing some broadcasting. What's that like for you?
3: You know, I I said to people, it's probably the closest thing to play the game for me right now, um, because you know, you have to prepare. It's not just you show up and you do your thing on the air. Uh, It's a lot of preparation and it's a teamwork too. You got different people that works with you and like right before they go on the air live, you have the butterfly in your stomach the same way that Mm -hmm. I had right before playing a game. And when you go live, you have to deliver and same thing in playing hockey. You have to play your game and when it's over, like the feeling of, you know, having a good Game or, you know, having been good on the air. It's the same thing. Like you just have that few hours after you cannot go to sleep. You're, you know, (laughs) you're awake and you're like feeling good and just reviewing everything you see in the air the same way that when I was playing, I would just replay my whole game. So it's been really, really cool. Like, obviously, I learned a lot. I have a lot more to learn, but I have such a great group of people around me. You know, Larry Murphy, Chris Haskell, John Keaton, who's been absolutely amazing, helping me uh, on everything there. So it, it's been really cool to, to be part of it.
1: And talk to a little bit more about your work with the Girls League, the Little Caesars League. That must be so rewarding for you to take some of your life lessons and pass them along.
3: Uh, Yes, it's been great. Not, Not only to be able to be part building that program and I had a vision to how I wanted this program to look like. Uh, where it's all about, you know, developing the kids and and teach them life lessons, preparing them for the next level. If it's in hockey or in life, and I learned so much from playing the game. And I look back now later as an adult, like going through, like, you know, working somewhere or just life in general. The way I face adversity was when I was younger, as a player be able to remember those moments and apply that in my life Mm -hmm. now was so good for me and helped me to continue to have success in life um, that I want to share that with those young girls and to be able to teach them not only uh, the game on the ice but what hockey can bring you off the ice Um, it's very important it's very rewarding too when you see the success of the program right now like you know uh, our program has not only a lot of success like on the ice but girls are getting scholarship girls are you know getting invited to the u18 uh, national team and it's and just seeing them facing adversity throughout their journey and see that they can
1: uh, overcome them it's been a lot of fun and you also mentioned to carol that you now are the mother of a hockey player So the tables are kind of turned. So talk to us about that. How are you doing? How does it feel?
3: (laughs) I have two boys. One is a goalie, one is a defenseman. And I can tell you, I always (laughs) said that to people. I'm excited to go see both my boys. But my goalie son, it's not fun to watch. And (laughs) my defenseman, a lot more fun to watch. And the the, story too, the first time my son that is a goalie uh, had his first state championship I remember he was playing the final. It was the one playing the final. I, I woke up in the morning, and I was co- I was one of the coach. I was not the head coach, but one of the coach. And I woke up in the morning, and I had butterfly in my stomach. And I called <laughs> my mom, and I said to my mom, "Okay, I have a question for you. Am I normal? Dylan's playing in the final today." And a butterfly in my stomach. And she said to me, it's payback time. <laughs> and that, that's when I realized, I'm like, I cannot believe I put my mom through this. <laughs> I can only imagine, not only my mom had the pressure of me playing goalie, but I was the only girl playing with the boys. She had to hear all this stuff about me in the stands, which she shared with me later on in life. And I'm like, wow, I cannot believe I put her through this. So I have a lot of respect for all goalie moms out there. And it's so <laughs> hard. But at the end of the day, it's, it, it's nice to share with my boys. You know, I know how they feel in different situations. Even my son is a defenseman. Like, you know, just the whole, like, going through the whole process of trying to make it to the next level. And so it, it's very nice to be able to share that with them.
1: Manon Raoum, our own hockey all-star, our own female all-star. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. It was really great to meet you. Thanks for having me. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after this. Listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show and Dr. Carol, we continue the conversation now talking about St. Patrick's Day and the return of a celebration that we have all been missing for a couple of years the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Detroit this weekend, Sunday, March 13th. And here with us now to give us the scoop on the big event is parade organizer Mike Kelly. He is also the United Irish. Society's president. Mike, thank you for being here.
0: Well, Ann, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And Carol, it's a pleasure. You know, we've missed two years of the Detroit St. Patrick's Parade. And uh, boy, it has had an impact on a lot of different organizations, I can tell you that.
1: Oh, it really has, Mike. Now, this is the 62nd Detroit St. Patrick's Day Parade, correct? Wow.
0: Well, yeah, I guess. We've, we're in a conflict between 62nd and 64th because it should be the 64th. Oh. And, uh, so we're just calling it the 22 St. Patrick's Parade.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So what's the history of the parade? What's behind this big celebration in Detroit?
0: Well, the parade started you know, 60, actually 64 years ago in, in uh, Dearborn. And uh, thank you to Judge Michael Reardon for uh, always uh, educating me on where it started. But uh, the neighborhood people started a parade and then the parade got a little bigger between different neighborhoods. And then he decided they wanted to take it bigger. So they moved it to Detroit and it used to be on Woodward Avenue in Detroit. And then uh, we moved it to Corktown as our association with Cork and Corktown got bigger and it was a, a better venue for us.
1: And tell us a little bit about who's in the parade, how it works.
0: Well, first of all, the United Irish Society's 35 member groups, their sole purpose is to put on the Detroit St. Patrick's parade and raise funds for that. And uh, each member group has delegates for the parade. So the UIS member groups are in the parade. Obviously we bring in high school bands from around the metropolitan area. there's different participants uh, as far as uh, uh, floats, uh, novelty items, uh, pipe bands from around the metropolitan area are involved also. So we've got uh, a great group of people uh, that are involved in the parade uh, as we organize it and move forward.
1: And our own Paul W. Smith is the MC of the parade, right?
0: very excited paul's been involved with us for a while and uh you know the parade company works with us as does morton crim communications as you know we've uh in the day we would run the parade you know with a, a volunteers and you know a few uh, marshals from each of the irish organizations and myself and uh, everything was on paper and you know it was the city of detroit uh, DPW would clean Michigan Avenue and uh, Detroit Police Department tactical operations would put on our bike barricades and uh, we could get by with a parade for paying the bands and, and the, the items that we needed, you know, it was about ten fifteen thousand $15,000. Well, those costs have gone up to 70,000. Wow. So, As a nonprofit organization. You know, we do raise funds throughout the year based on the Grand Marshal Brunch and the uh, Queen of the Detroit United Irish Societies and our parade fundraiser, but uh, we can't solely support this parade. There's so many other big cities across the Midwest that have stopped having their St. Patrick's Parade because, mm. A, they can't afford it.
2: Mm. And where, where does the route go? Like, if I want to bring my family a uh, couple two questions where do where does it start how long is the parade where's the best venue you would say we should watch it and are there other activities that are happening on sunday that i can take my family to enjoy
0: well the Corktown races always precede the detroit st patrick's parade and uh, the fraternal oral unite irishman put that on and has grown to be a, a excellent fundraising event uh, mostly for st pat senior center But the FOOE's donate and support a lot of events that go on with the uh, United Irish Society. So the Fraternal Order United Irishmen, great bunch of gentlemen uh, that do a lot of wonderful things for the Detroit community, that's for sure. So that happens. Then the parade starts after that, and uh, the parade stages at the Irish Plaza on Michigan Avenue and 6th, uh, back at Most Holy Trinity in the parking lots back there on... uh, Abbott and Porter Street and the divisions line up back there and then they march right out on the Michigan Avenue and proceed down Michigan Avenue to Roosevelt Park where the parade ends. And
1: Austin. the parade is it's sponsored by Ford Motor Company and the Kitch Law firm, Mike.
0: Yeah, we have some great sponsors this year. Uh, Ford Motor has been involved of course with their their movement into Corktown. Uh, we'd like to get Ford more involved as we move forward, you know, as the train station comes to fruitation and more activities and people will be down there. And then Kitch uh, Law Firm has been very supportive of us uh, over the last few years and we appreciate their support. Uh, we do have some other supporters, uh, PGA, um, Andy Housie and Brad Bararski, those guys have taken over for the Detroit uh, DPW and they clean the parade route for us on Saturday. And then they'll come in on Sunday and clean the parade route and the staging area. And then they come back by on Monday uh, just to see if there's anything left over from the revelers on Michigan Avenue. So and they've been a big part of this also for us.
1: What's the start time? What time does everything get rolling? The
0: parade starts right at one o'clock. Uh, we have our mass at Most Holy Trinity and Monsignor Kosanke is so generous. He has a mass down there for us. So it's like New York, we step out of the Basilica onto the Parade route. So it worked out very well for us. And of course, Holy Trinity is not a Basilica, but that's what happens in New York.
1: And Mike Kelly, you must be absolutely thrilled that it's back this year. It's our first sign of spring and it's really very exciting.
0: It is. And, you know, part of the parade is to celebrate our Irish heritage, but also recognize the UIS member groups who donate to charities throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And with not having the parade, it's been very hard for the charities. You, you can't have a fundraiser uh, to donate money to the organizations. So the organizations, the charity organizations are hurting a little bit. Sure. Uh, the AOH hall and the Knights of Columbus hall, where we have these events, they weren't open, so they're losing out on bar revenue as we all make money at the door and for raffle tickets at the events to donate. So it's been hard for the charities. Uh, even though, you know, the UIS is our commitments to our sponsors, was still to donate money to the uh, charities. And we have, for the last two years, have donated uh, money to the charities, to our four charities. This year we have five charities that we're very excited about.
1: Well, it sounds like it's going to be a blast, Mike Kelly, UIS president. Have a wonderful time and happy St. Patrick's Day.
0: Happy St. Patrick's Day, and thank you so much. and look forward to seeing you down at the parade on Sunday.
1: You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after this. are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman show. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, and March is Women's History Month, and so we thought it would be appropriate to check in again with Oakland University professor Joe Rieger. She is a professor of sociology, and she's also the department chair of sociology, anthropology, social work, and criminal justice at Oakland University. Welcome to the show, Professor. It's nice to see you again.
4: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So I'm going to let Carol kick this segment off and just kind of talk a little bit about the history of women.
2: So thank you Professor Rieger. I really appreciate you being on the show and and I am so proud and happy and glad God made me a woman. I can tell you. <laughs> you know, we are the we are the superior sex in my mind and for all those guys sorry, but you know, without a woman world wouldn't happen. We are the ones that, you know, create life and and push them out, but I want to know tell me about your perception of the advancements of women over the last several years, and I know that there have been struggles, but talk about the journey, and and are you seeing more positivity with women being able to accomplish what they want to accomplish?
4: Oh, I think that's true. Um, You know, you make me think about, I was talking to my class a week or so ago, and I was talking about all the people who wouldn't be in this class if we went back you know, a couple of generations, right? All of the women who would not be there. And so I do think women have opportunities today um, in education, in business, um, in medicine that they've never had before. And so I do think we are in um, an amazing time to to be a woman, to identify as a woman and to, you know, see what what it is possible that we can achieve.
2: And how do you think that it has come to the successes of women that we're starting to see. And I know we have a long way to go. I I appreciate that. Um, But do you think it's women sticking together, women being more vocal? How have we been able to show progress over the course of these decades?
4: I think one of the key factors is The ongoing women's movement, um, particularly in this country that goes back to the 1800s, Uh, the fact that women have come together um, with men as allies and protested and sought certain rights that they can vote, that they can hold political office, that they can have credit cards, that they can go to medical school, all of those things come about because women as a group uh, protested and women as a group engaged in activism and lobbied and um, worked to make it happen. And so um, open the door and then um, let other women come into whatever profession, whatever area that they were interested in. So I do think, you know, one of the things we can't forget is that um, the women's movement really has made a significant difference in the lives of Um, women today in the United States and in other places around the world too.
2: And what work, more work do you think we need to do as women and as a society to make it better?
4: Well, I think, I think we always have to be careful when we start talking about broad categories of people like women in general, and assuming that everyone's experiencing the same success. So I think Part of what we need to do is look um, around us to see who um, is not having the same success. Another woman that isn't able to achieve. Um, what's happening in terms of, you know, what kind of salaries are we getting? What kind of treatment are we getting at our jobs? Um, how how are we experiencing our daily life? And I think when we look around us to see that maybe my experience is not the experience other people have, I think that makes us better citizens as a whole. It makes us understand kind of the complexity of the world we live in and that we are not the only ones. right? And I think sometimes when we live in communities surrounded by people who look like us or um, have the same education level, same race, whatever, we kind of assume everybody's doing well. But the reality is is that there are groups of people and there are groups of women who are not experiencing the same successes that are still struggling. And I think what makes a stronger society is when we care about that.
2: And where are we, as women in the United States, how do we compare to women in the world with regard to our successes and our ability to get what we dream of?
4: Well, that's a a complicated mix. you know, in some ways, women in our society have a lot of advantages, um, a lot of freedoms, a lot of opportunities. But when we look at other, um, other countries, uh, and when we look at things like maternal m- mortality rates and infant mortality rates, there are other countries doing much better than we are in terms of women and healthcare, pater- particularly around issues of pregnancy and childbirth. Um, if we look at where we are right now in terms of talking about birth control and reproductive rights, we're in a very difficult situation that other countries seem to be dealing with differently. Yet, when we look at the word globally, you know, we are really doing much better than some women who are in other nations, other societies. So it's a complicated question. We like to think of ourselves as being the very best, but there's some areas where um, women's lives and children's lives could be improved in the United States.
1: You know, there's one group of, of women right now, Professor, that I'm concerned about here in the United States, and it's the young professional woman who is maybe recently married, getting into a profession, maybe has one or two children or more than that. And they're coming out of the pandemic. And a lot of those women are struggling. They have had to quit their jobs. What are you seeing with regard to that?
4: Uh, COVID has taken a very uneven toll in terms of men and women's lives. And when women are still primarily the people who take care of the children in the home, you know, if you had children, um, you know, grade school children, children under five, Mm -hmm. you lost your access to preschool, you lost, your kids were being educated at home, you were trying to do your full-time job while you were helping your, you know, your children figure out how to do school learning, um, yeah, a lot of women got out of the labor market because it was just too difficult. And I see that in my own department. Uh, we have a lot of faculty who have children under the age of five where people were trying to teach online, keep their kids online to get their school work done, um, and being at home 24-7 with no support whatsoever because you can't even, you know, go next door to the neighbors because we were in lockdown. So I think the effects of COVID have shown us. Us, that there, there still is some inequality in, in terms of how we think about childcare, how we think about work, who's responsible for what happens in the home, um, that women really did take a toll through that, and also mental health issues. That this has been a very difficult uh, lockdown for children, for parents, for really everybody.
1: And you have a new book out that you want our audience to know about. It's called Gender and Social Movements. What's it about?
4: It's really about the ways in which... um you know, people are shaped by social movements. So like how, what it means to be a part of a social movement, how that changes you and how that gives you new experiences and skills, but also the way in which social movements um, are changed by people, how people being involved in social movements can change the outcomes and the directions. And I spent a lot of time looking at like women's movements and men's movements mm-hmm. and where they come from and what they accomplish and how people experience being in them and how they accomplish goals. So I try to look at all sorts of social movements in terms of how we as gendered people experience them.
1: And you obviously feel that the social movement or asocial movement is key for change in a community.
4: I think it's one of the things that matters. I think social movements can set a lot of things in place. I mean, we know that when women um, are in charge of organizations, when they are in charge of campaigns, then they go into political office. They learn skills. When you Mm -hmm. learn those skills that opens up these horizons for making change. So I do feel like that's one of the ways in which our society has changed is through the social movements around us.
1: And how can people get the book, Professor?
4: Uh, It's on Amazon and it's uh, just under my name, Joe Rieger, Gender and Social Movements from Polity Press. So uh, not to give a plug to Amazon, but you can go on any bookstore and you should be able to find it online.
1: (laughs) Oakland University Professor Joe Rieger, thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking to you. Thank you. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after this. close out this edition of the Healthy Woman Show, Dr. Carol, let's talk a little bit about the history of you and your business and how you got started in the infertility business.
2: Well, where'd you like to start,
1: Ann? Let's start from the very <laughs> beginning.
2: <laughs> so people always ask me, and thank you for asking me about this. Um, you know, Michigan Center is very near and dear to my heart, and it's... it's I I love to go to work every day, and what's that old saying? When you do that, it's never a day of work in your life. Um, It's true. I love, love, love doing what I do, and I couldn't do it without the team I have. And Michigan Center was actually started or recommended based on my staff. So I had done my training at Wayne State, a great, great, great medical school, Um, residency fellowship at Hutzel Hospital at the time at the DMC, and love the people, love the patients. Uh, But sometimes it's difficult when you're in a big system Mm -hmm. to put the vision that you want when you're thinking about taking care of all aspects of your patients. So I'll never forget, I had just come back from my maternity leave with my fourth baby, Michael, and my staff walked into my office on a busy Thursday night at uh, Wayne at, at Hudson and, and said, you know, we like how you take care of patients. If you quit, we'll follow you. And we believe we can have a more personal approach to taking care of fertility patients. And I had five staff members and looking at me and I looked at my husband and I said, I got home and I like, you're not going to believe what they just asked me to do. And I, I'm thinking about it. What do you think? And and he's like, go for it. You can do it. And I said, you know, what's the worst that can happen? It flops. It fails. And I'm a mom of four kids, which that's the best job in the world to me is, is being the mother of them. Uh, so we did. So Lisa Perry, you're out there. Thank you uh, for doing this. Uh, but Don Evans, Lisa Perry, uh, Maureen, we started a second phone line in Lisa's uh, living room and started michigan center and um i walked out found an office on 12 and shaner and leased that out and uh you know michigan center was born and sure enough i quit and then slowly those staff members quit to form the core uh, of michigan center so that started uh, in 2002 it's actually going to be our 20th anniversary uh this november
1: that's so amazing. Yeah,
2: and so they believed in me. so and, and I believe in them and, and it's worked.
1: And now, because you believed in each other, you've got four different locations, Carol.
2: We were very blessed, very blessed. We outgrew the 12 and Shaner within five years. Um, a wonderful man, Michael Kirk, who's our embryologist. Uh, you know, I didn't plan on doing IVF for five years and six months after I opened, he's I met him actually the following April. He's like, let's do IVF. We can do this. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready. He's like, I got you. And we did our first IVF case 2003 in August. Uh, quickly outgrew that that place, went to 13 and Mound, uh, doubled the size of the office. And then uh, Lake Orion uh, needed someone. We did a satellite there and then you know moved on to Bloomfield when a wonderful, gentle giant, Dr. Britton, from ARMS, American Reproductive Medicine, uh, unexpectedly passed away. We took over his practice and then there was a need in Plymouth. So uh, Dr. Boudry's is the key fertility doc out there. So uh, we've been very, very blessed to, over the last 20 years, expand the staff and as well as as the offices and and we're actually moving. Uh, the Bloomfield office needed to be bigger and, and March 22nd, our, our Bloomfield office is uh, now moving to uh, Woodward, just north of Square Lake Road. So I'm um, just very blessed to be able to follow a passion, help patients as many as we can to make their uh, family dreams come true. And and uh, with a team of women who are, speaking of women's history, who are unbelievable women, who are as passionate as I am. And of course, we've got a couple of token males in there uh, with <laughs> Michael and embryologists and a couple of women. Uh, phlebotomist and, and medical assistant, so very grateful.
1: What a great story for Women's History Month! Now coming up next month in April, this is basically your month. Infertility mm-hmm. Awareness Week is April twenty fourth, starts April twenty fourth, but you know what? The whole month is your month. What are we going to talk well, about? Next month? Uh,
2: well, I'm going to tell you. Uh, you know, April show is going to be all about fertility. So whoever has any interest in knowing about how to build your family. Uh, the basic workup, the treatment options, the new things we can do, how to stay healthy and, and optimize your, uh, your nutrition and your general health to make those families happen. We're going to talk about the Walk of Hope, uh, which is coming up at the end of April, which is a sponsorship to make fertility awareness uh, uh, available to, to people who want to know about getting pregnant. That's all coming up in the April show.
1: That's going to be a great and informative show, Carol. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Me too. You've been listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. On behalf of Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, I'm Ann Thomas. We hope you have a great day, and thanks so much for joining us.
0: The Healthy Woman Show with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk has been presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health.